We are uh, continuing our series this morning uh, that we started last week. We're going to be looking at, for the next uh, 10 weeks or so, uh, the book of 1 John. And we're calling this series Real Christianity. And if you weren't with us last week, uh, one of the things that we said is the easiest way to spot a counterfeit is by becoming incredibly familiar with the real thing. And John is writing this letter uh, in the first century to a network of churches in Asia Minor who were in danger of falling for counterfeit Christianity. And the danger was coming from inside the church, not outside. People who seemed very knowledgeable, very spiritual, but whom John says are actually very dangerous because they're leading you away from the apostolic testimony to Jesus. And these individuals didn't think they were destroying Christianity. They actually thought they were improving it, that they were giving it an update to make it more acceptable and congenial to their cultural moment. And when they're doing this, they were doing this by blending it with other spiritualities and philosophies of the day. But the thing that we need to see this morning is this. The danger is not just something that comes from inside the church. It's actually a danger that is inside you and is inside me. And the word for it that John uses is sin. We're going to talk about sin this morning because that's where John starts. And he actually doesn't start with talking about other people's sins. He starts talking about our own. And if you want a big idea to hold on to uh, this morning as we go through the passage, um, that idea is this. You're never dealing with the real Jesus if you're not dealing with your sin. If you're new to the Christian faith and you're exploring what this is all about, it's important to understand you'll never understand Christianity if you don't have a sense of sin. And for those of you who've grown up in the church and lived all your life right in its embrace, when you stop thinking about your sin, you're on your way to falling for counterfeits. So with that in mind, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. A reading from 1 John. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all our sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, we pray that you would be with us this morning and that you would send your spirit to apply your word to our hearts 
and that through that we would see the beauty and the glory and the grace and the goodness of Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. You know, whenever uh, you say publicly a word like sin, um, people can start to get uncomfortable. Um, or they chuckle because we use sin now in a very tame way to describe flavors of ice cream, right? Sinful delight, you know, or certain cocktails. Um, we even like to talk about innocuous little things as guilty pleasures, right? So we need, we need to reframe for a moment our understanding of sin. And the way John does that is through a contrast between light and darkness. And this is what he writes in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. When you go on to read the rest of John's letter, what you find is that he uses a lot of imperatives. If you're not an English major, uh, that means a command. A lot of commands in this letter. But underneath those commands or those imperatives are two big indicatives, statements of fact. And they are about the character of God. A little later in 1 John 4, we will read these words. God is love. And we love that one. We love that God is love, and rightly so. But here, in the passage we're looking at this morning, the indicative is this. God is light. And, and, and what John is doing is this. Who God is is supposed to form and shape how we live. God is love, so walk in love. Don't walk in hatred. And then here, God is light, so walk in the light. Don't walk in darkness. And that can sound very simple. You're like, thanks, uh, Pastor. Um, moving on now. But there's many ways to walk in the darkness. And what John does in this first part of uh, the passage this morning is he zeroes in on one central feature of walking in the darkness. And then he gives us the critical and most important first steps of walking in the light. And I want to talk about that a bit. Now, you may notice there's a certain symmetry to these verses. John, there's a pattern that he repeats three times. And the pattern goes like this. If we say, that's verse 6, that's verse 8, and that's verse 10. Let's imagine those lined up in a column. We're going to look at those together. And then he draws a conclusion from that. And that conclusion is pretty alarming. We lie. We don't practice the truth. We deceive ourselves. And even says, we call God a liar. And then finally, each time he states the alternative. But if we, and that's found in verse 7 and in verse 9, and then going into chapter 2. And so we're going to look at one column first and then look at the other. And we're going to be talking about walking in the darkness versus walking in the light. But I want you to notice something, that once John leaves verse 5, the way he uses the word we subtly shifts. Say that three times fast. Subtly, sh subtly shifts. There we go. <laughs> subtly shifts, right? Subtly. There we go. Got it. In the first few verses that we looked at last week, we was contrasted with you. We, the apostles, the apostolic witnesses, are declaring to you what we have seen and heard and touched, Jesus. And the good news about him. But now the we becomes inclusive. 
Me and you, you and me, John is identifying himself with those to whom he writes. And I think that's important so that we can listen to him well. So this morning, we're going to talk about walking in the darkness versus walking in the light. So let's look at walking in the darkness first. John puts his finger on one central feature of walking in the darkness, and I'm going to sum it up like this. Walking in the darkness is living in denial. It's living in denial that sin is a problem. See, we tend to think sin, right, it's NBD, as the kids are saying these days. No big deal. But sin is a huge, huge deal. If God is light, in whom there is no darkness at all, and sin is darkness, how could sin not be a problem? A huge, huge problem. In order to get this, you've got to understand the metaphor of God is light. That's a metaphor that is used throughout the Old Testament. Jesus applies it to himself in the Gospel of John. And it is a metaphor that at the very least highlights God's purity and moral excellence. And it's associated everywhere with his holiness. Now, just as an aside, I think one of the signs that you're growing vulnerable to counterfeit Christianity is when you stop thinking about God as holy. Is God love? Yeah, he's love. Thank God for that, right? Is he wise? Sure, you bet. Is he kind and generous? Absolutely. But God is also holy. He is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And that God is light means that he alone is the standard for human morality and ethics. So walking in darkness is ignoring his word and his will and his commands and acting like it's no big deal. It's living in denial that sin is a problem. And John actually lays the hammer down in verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, this is really important for us to, to, to wrestle with because it's all too common to want to claim some kind of mystical intimacy with God without any concern for holiness. To claim that you're close to him while you're deliberately walking in darkness. And what John is saying is if you walk in the shadows of sin and evil, yet claim to be close to him, your life is exposed as a sham. When it's brought into divine light. And he says we lie. And we're not just lying with our lips. We are lying with our lives. See a profession of faith in Christ. Is, is meant to go. With a life that matches it. And this is coming to a major theme in this letter. And that's the connection between belief. And behavior. Which is a very simple question. Does this match up with that? And what John is getting at is this. How can we claim to know and love the one who is light and purity and wholeness and be indifferent to the ways that he wants us to live? That's living in denial that sin is a problem. Now, John's going to talk a lot more about this in the coming chapters. So uh, I, I want to I say something here uh, is sort of a cautionary uh, move for a moment. And that is, it would be really easy to weaponize this to judge and condemn others. 
But that's not what John is trying to do here. And by the way, you know you're doing it in your heart right now if you're thinking about certain people and going like, yeah, they're not a real Christian. John does something surprising here. He doesn't go after them out there. He goes after us. And he includes himself in it. He turns it into a scalpel for surgery on our hearts. Because walking in the darkness isn't simply living in denial that sin is a problem. It's living in denial that sin is your problem and mine. See, living in denial that sin is your problem is the main feature that John is drawing attention to in the verses that follow. Verse 8, listen to this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now this is interesting. Um, Many of you may be familiar with the name uh, Carl Menninger. A famous 20th century uh, psychiatrist, founded a school of psychiatry, uh, was well-credentialed, taught at Harvard Medical School, worked at the Boston Psychiatric Hospital. Uh, he, he even received the Presidential Medal of Honor from Jimmy Carter in, uh, in 1981. But about a decade before that, in 1973, he wrote a book called Whatever Became of Sin. Uh, some of you who are a little older may remember this. Um, that was the year before I was born, uh, but I did come across it. So, uh, but in this book, it's fascinating. He predicted that in American culture, sin would be replaced by words like illness, disorder, syndrome, dysfunction, and that we would increasingly become more and more satisfied with explanations of the human condition that just attribute it to biochemistry, trauma, and environment. In other words, everyone would soon be considered sick, not sinful. Now, it's hard to argue with Menninger's prediction. It's been realized in spades. But I want to put a twist on this for a second, and this is important. Yes, it is true that many of us may be sick with all sorts of things for which we need help. Psychiatric help, medical intervention, right? Yes, But what John wants us to never forget is this. The most dangerous sickness that ails us is the sickness of sin. We are sick with sin. But we often don't want to face that reality. See, verse 8, when it says, if we say we have no sin, it's essentially that thing in our hearts makes us say, but I'm not sick with sin. I'm not sick with sin. And, you know, there's, there's memes going around right now all over social media, coming from churches, by the way, where people say things like, you are not broken. There is nothing wrong with you. And John is saying, don't deceive yourself. Don't live in denial that sin is your problem. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves in the truth is not in us. You know what John's doing? He's saying, listen, there is a gospel of self-acceptance and self-love out there, which is no gospel at all. It's a counterfeit. And he's not saying you need to hate yourself. That's not what he means. He's saying there is good news that only comes from understanding the bad news about yourself. Now, that may sound harsh. I, I get it. But we actually need to hear it. It's like an oncologist telling you 
those words you never want to hear. You have cancer. That's not pleasant uh, uh, diagnosis to receive. And you may not want to hear it, but if you have cancer, you absolutely need to hear it. Why? Because you'll never get the treatment if you don't think that you have the disease. If you say, I am not sick with sin, John writes, you deceive yourself. But John goes on in verse 10 to say, okay, maybe I have this sickness, but I have the symptoms under control. That's what it means if you say you have not sinned. You know, we're like, yeah, the potential is there in me, right? But uh, I got this. I can do it myself. And John actually saves his hardest words for that. He says, you're calling God a liar. God says that sin is universal and pops up everywhere in our lives. But you think you're the exception. Yeah, I know that sin is a big deal. I know the potential for sin is in me. But I'm actually, I'm actually not sinning in my behavior. I'm a pretty good person. And let me grant for a moment that if you and I compare ourselves to others, sometimes it might seem like we're pretty darn good at the moment. But what about next year? Or what about next week? Or what about seeing yourself before the face of the God who is light? Different story. Different story altogether. There are countless ways that we live in denial that sin is our problem. We rationalize it. We make excuses for it. We plead extenuating circumstances. We say things like, "You, but you made me so angry. right?" Or I was really, really tired. Aspects of all of which may be, may be true to a certain extent. But it can easily become a way to live in denial that sin is our problem. You know what? One of the favorite ways we do this is we actually rename and relabel sin. Um, I, I, I struggle with how much I should share from this article because I might want to use it later for something, but I'm going to go ahead and like just get it out there. There is an article that I recommend you go read, read today, tomorrow, whatever, and it's by a theologian by the name of Simeon Zoll. And the title of the article is Hiding in Plain Sight. And what, what, what he does in this article is to say, you know, the condition of sin hasn't disappeared, right? It's staring us in the face. It's just hiding underneath other labels. And he uses this great phrase, the MRI machine may be broken, but the patient still has cancer. We're no longer seeing ourselves in light of the God who is light, right? But we still have the condition of walking in darkness, and we're, 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 we're denying it. And, 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 he, and he does this very clever thing. He says, you know what? Uh, we all have this tendency to attribute good things that happen to us to our hard work and good things to happen to other people as luck or unfairness. You know how this goes, right, in your department. And also, the bad things that happen to us, we got passed over for the promotion, right, or our, you know, advisor just peaced out on us, right? They were like, this is just unfair and unjust, right? But then when... Something good happens to, or something bad happens to our coworker. We're like, they had it coming to them. And you know what? We, we used to call this pride, and it was a sin. But you now, now you know what we call it? Fundamental attribution error. And we snicker, right? Or how about this? We are highly disposed to justify our decisions as good choices. We make, we make a purchase, right? And uh, we have some feelings about that, and then we can just 
find all the tools that we need to sort of rationalize and say like, oh yeah, that was a very good choice. We used to call that selfishness and greed. You know what it's now called? Post-purchase rationalization syndrome. And what Zoll says is sin is right there staring us in the face. It hasn't gone anywhere. We just call it something else that feels a little less threatening. A little less threatening to our sense of self. And this is what John is doing. Is he's saying when you stop seeing sin as your problem, you are deceiving yourself and you're in danger of falling for counterfeits. You know, it's interesting that hypocrisy is a word that no one wants applied to them. Like, we're all like, I hate hypocrites. But a hypocrisy is of many kinds. You can be a phony or a fraud or a pretender by claiming closeness with God while ignoring his commands. And that's what he's getting after in verse 6. But you can also be a phony and a fraud and a pretender by thinking you're such a good person that you have no need of forgiveness. And we are quick to recognize the first kind of phoniness, but so slow and maybe even refuse to recognize the second. We are sick with sin, and it is a real problem. It is walking in darkness to live in denial that that's the truth. Now, the question becomes is there any treatment for this sickness? Is there an answer to the brokenness? that we find inside of us when exposed to the God is, who is light. And some of you might think walking in light is just get it together, get obedient, get rid of sin in your life. But I want you to hear that there is good news for those who are crushed by the bad news. And you know what that good news is? John writes, Jesus Christ, the righteous, is our advocate and the propitiation for our sins. And I think this helps us understand what it means to walk in the light. So let's talk about that. Moving to this column, right? Verses seven and verses nine, right? John has been hinting at this all along. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, not the social hostility, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If walking in the light was living a perfect life, then what sin are we being cleansed from? See, walking in the light is not first living an obedient life. That's actually the fruit of it. It is confessing your sins and running to Jesus. And what John writes is, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. You know, that verb for purify here means God does more than just forgive, like cancel the debt. He erases the stain. And there are echoes here of the sacrifices that were offered on the Day of Atonement, removing the defilement of sin. And he says that this is for all sin, every kind and every one, comprehensive cleansing, no sin that can't be cleansed by the blood of Christ. How do we get that? Well, verse 9, by telling the truth about ourselves. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now listen carefully. The effectiveness of confession is not found in the virtue of the act itself. 
As if like, oh, that was such a good confession. I'm, I'm, uh, okay, you're off now. It's grounded in the character of God. John writes that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now, this is interesting. Because you might think he would say faithful and merciful. But he says faithful and just. And what John is doing is he's drawing upon the old covenant and the themes of the promise of forgiveness and God keeping covenant with his people when they didn't keep covenant with him. God is faithful to all his covenant promises. He's true to his word. Unlike the pagan gods, he isn't fickle. He isn't moody. And he is just to forgive and purify because he made a way for the righteous demands to be met in the death of his son. The Apostle Paul writes about this in Romans 3, 25. That through the death of Jesus, God is both the justifier, declaring righteous, people who put their faith in his son, and just in doing so. He's faithful to forgive because he's promised to do so, and he's just because his son died for our sins. And by the way, God would be unfaithful to his promise if he withheld forgiveness from those who confess their sins and run to Jesus. But he's not, and he never will be. The origin of all of this is the Father's love. The Father sends the Son to do the work so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be purified, so that we can be cleansed, so we can be made new, so the stain could be erased. And by the way, this is the best motivation for forgiveness ever. It's how we can own our junk before the Lord. Confession is not not a time of self-flagellation and self-hatred. It's a time where we tell the truth about ourselves. Scripture is filled with warnings about hiding or concealing our sin. But here's the most wonderful invitation. To come confess, be forgiven, and be cleansed. Walking in the light entails ongoing cleansing from sin. To enjoy fellowship with God. Now, we've got to be clear. John isn't encouraging us to live presumptuously. Like, sounds like a great deal. God loves to forgive. I love to sin. You know, sweet. You know, what he says in chapter 2, verse 1 is, my little children, the tender words of a wise old pastor, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. You walk fully in the light. I'm not condoning it. I'm actually trying to prevent it. Go back to verse 6. But then he says, if anyone does sin, I want to move you away from this, but I know you're going to struggle in the process. And when you do, I want you to remember, you have an advocate. Now, you got to love this word. What's an advocate? An advocate is someone who works on your behalf. Someone who comes alongside you, right, to do what you can't do for yourself. An advocate is someone who is for you. And John writes here that Jesus is your advocate. The word was sometimes used for special counsel for the defendant in the ancient world. One who pleads the cause of the person on trial. And John John says, we have the best advocate you could imagine. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Because he is righteous, there's no chance ever that what he urges won't be heard or will be rejected because it fails to measure up to God's standards of righteousness. And it says that he is our advocate with the Father. He ministers on our behalf, 
in the Father's presence. His voice carries weight and it will be heard. And, and, and just as an aside, um, this doesn't mean that like the, there's this angry father up there like, I'm going to get you. And Jesus is like, no, no, please don't hurt them. The origin is the Father's love. The God who is light sends his son into the darkness to do the work of bringing us out of darkness and into the light. And he advocates his own righteousness for us. You know, in certain strands of Jewish thought of John's day, one's own good works were thought to function as your advocate. You, your good works advocated for a good verdict on the day of judgment. But John says, no, 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 no. It's not your good works. It is Jesus that is your advocate. And he is continually ministering on your behalf in the Father's presence. The risen Christ continues his ministry in heaven. It's a teaching found through all, throughout all the New Testament. And in fact, in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is described as our great high priest. One who is holy, unblemished, unstained, who always lives to intercede for you. He's the one who is for you forever. But get this, he's not just the priest, he's the sacrifice. And through his death, once for all, sins are dealt with once for all. And John writes of it here as he is the propitiation for our sins, turning away God's wrath so that we can receive God's favor. And John adds, not just for ours, but for the whole world, by which he means this isn't just for a certain tribe of people or class of people or race of people or sexuality of people. It is to anyone who recognizes that sin is my problem, tells the truth about themselves and runs to Jesus, that he becomes the advocate and propitiation. John Calvin wrote, Christ's intercession is the continual application of his death to our salvation. That John is writing all this means that there were some actually reconsidering whether the atonement was really the heart of the gospel or essential to Christianity. The focus shifting away from the cross and perhaps focusing entirely on the ethical teachings of Jesus. And we see this in us, don't we? And we say, you know, it's just, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're a good person. We kind of say, haven't we moved beyond blood sacrifice and stuff? Haven't we matured beyond all this? But what John says, real Christianity, real Christianity means telling the truth about yourself and running to Jesus, your advocate and propitiation. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Uh, some of you may know the name T.S. Eliot, who was uh, a famous poet and playwright in the 20th century. And he just had this uncanny ability to portray the realities of human brokenness and the longing for redemption. Uh, in one of his plays, uh, it's called The Cocktail Party. I think it's 1949. Uh, he portrays this cocktail party that's being hosted by this married couple. Their names are Edward and Lavinia. And this married couple's marriage is falling apart, but no one really knows that yet. Now, adding to the awkwardness of this cocktail party where their marriage is crumbling, 
the husband, Edward's mistress, is actually there. Part of the reason why the marriage is crumbling. There's a young woman named Celia Copleston. And her affair with Edward is coming to an end, and she's beginning to unravel inside. She feels empty. She feels stained. She's deeply burdened and overwhelmed by something that she says she can't quite name or identify. So she goes to a psychiatrist who's also at the cocktail party and starts talking to him about all this. And she says, the only phrase that I can find that describes what I'm feeling is a sense of sin. And the psychiatrist is amused by this. And he starts asking her question after question after question, trying to diagnose what her psychiatric disorder is. But it's not helping Celia Copleston one bit. And so she finally says to the psychiatrist, it's not just the feeling of anything I've ever done which I might get away from or of anything in me that I might get rid of. It's the feeling of emptiness, of failure towards someone or something outside myself. And I feel I must atone. Is that the word? Can you treat a patient with such a state of mind? Emptiness and failure towards someone or something outside myself. It's a powerful description of the human condition when we stop living in denial. You may be new to the Christian faith. You may be exploring you know, all, all that it entails and what its claims are. But if you have that sense in your soul, John would say you're on the right track. Because no matter how successful we are, no matter how you know, enjoyable our life has been, no matter how comfortable our life might seem right now, we all have baggage. We've all done things for which we're ashamed. Some of those things a lot of people know about, some of those things no one knows about, and we want to keep it that way for as long as possible. But deep inside, if we're willing to listen, there is a longing to be reconciled to something or someone outside yourself. Longing to be made clean. One of the core claims of real Christianity is that God has actually answered that longing in sending his son. You know what counterfeit Christianity always does? It always leads you away from thinking about your sin. It wants you to think about your feelings instead. In whatever variety. Or something else. Anything but your sin. And John says, will you tell the truth about yourself? Will you get honest and stop being self-deceived? You know, I shudder when I hear someone say, in the face of a wrong done, but, but I know I'm a good person. Or when I want to say that, when I have done wrong. And the reason why I shudder is this, because this is the thing that actually keeps us from seeing what is not good about ourselves. And that's what keeps us from experiencing God's love. Most of the love we experience in life is love for us at our, at our best. Our polished up, well-presented selves accepted. But the love of God is something that we most deeply experience when we're at our worst and willing to admit it. You'll never discover the best about Jesus until you're willing to face the worst about yourself. What is John saying to this little community? 
He's saying, come out of the shadows. Come off the edges. Come out of hiding and into the light. The light of God's holiness and his truth and his grace. Yes, the light of his holiness and truth will expose you. That's what it does. But the light of his grace will heal you. As John writes in his gospel, echoing what he writes in this letter, last week he said Jesus was the life. Listen what he says in John 1, 4, and 5. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Friends, walking in the light is telling the truth about yourself and running to Jesus as your advocate and your atoning sacrifice. And that's a lifelong thing. But it will bear the fruit of obedience and love in our lives. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it gets into the nooks and crannies of our hearts. And Lord, it uncovers and it exposes. And it does this because you want to heal us with your grace. So God, we pray that you'd be doing that now. Whether that's happening for the first time in our lives or that's happening for the millionth time. Lord, would you pull us out of walking in the darkness of denial and into the light of telling the truth about ourselves and running to Jesus. God, we need your spirit to help us and to do this work in us. And so we ask you to do this and we thank you that because Jesus the righteous one is our advocate and our propitiation, you will hear and answer. We ask this in his name. Amen.